Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. We're going to study on baptism. Uh, the story goes about Guy in Woods, and I don't know if it's it's true or if it's a preacher story, but I like it anyway. About uh, Brother Guy in Woods. If you don't know who he is, he was a great scholar, writer, uh, answered tons of Bible questions, uh, famous for his his Bible study. And a student of his was walking by, and he was on the porch, and he was studying the Bible, and, and his student asked him, what are you studying? And he said, well, I'm, I'm studying baptism. And the student was kind of curious about that. He says, well, if anybody knows everything there is to know about baptism, I would think it would be Brother Guy in Woods. Uh, he says, Brother Woods, I, I would think you, you would have that pretty well studied. And he said, well, I'm, I might have missed something. Uh, and so that's... That's kind of where we're going with this today. Is we're studying baptism, and I realize that's a pretty basic topic. It's one we've studied many times before, but we might have missed something. I don't want to miss anything when it comes to salvation, and baptism is an important topic. Baptism appears in the Bible 115 times in different forms based off the root baptismo, 115 times. How many of those do you think are in the Old Testament? Zero. Never mentioned in the Old Testament. The word baptism is never used uh, unless my little search program failed me uh, in trying to find it in there. So you say, well, Luke, you're preaching on baptism in the Old Testament. That's going to be a short sermon. Uh, And we're going to get to lunch really early. Maybe it'll be a short sermon. We'll see. But uh, there are figures like unto baptism in the Old Testament, and that's what we're going to take a look at today. Is is baptism in the Old Testament in the sense of figures that are like unto baptism, sort of a type antitype uh, relationship? And why are we talking about baptism in the Old Testament? Well, get a historical and historical perspective of the reasoning and the pattern of baptism, what it actually does. We need to see the pattern develop from figures in the Old Testament as it's used in that context and see that pattern that develops. And the pattern that you're going to see over and over again is that by faithful obedience, there's a separation. There's a separation between those who do what God tells them to do and those who do not. And then, after that separation, there's going to be salvation from whatever punishment is going to be enacted on those who do not do what God tells them to do. There's salvation from that punishment for those who were baptized. And then finally, there's an invitation. There's an invitation to the feast or to a new land, or to a reward of some kind for those who have obtained God's salvation, provided by His grace in every case. And so we're going to start at a a place that I know that you know that I love, and that I've talked about before, and that is with Noah. I'm glad it's pretty dark because this picture of Noah has about 52 many windows in the, in the ark. The ark only had one window. 
But I like this picture anyway. So I'm glad I kind of can't see all the windows. But there's there's one window in the ark, and that's that's important. But we know that this is a figure like unto baptism because we read about it in the New Testament in First Peter. Three, we talked about that briefly in Bible class. Try not to step on my own toes, so I didn't read it at that time. But we'll read it now, First Peter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, <clears throat> by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah... While the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we see this is identified by Peter through the Holy Spirit, as being a figure like unto baptism, which saves us. Just like the ark saved Noah, but he says they were saved by water. Now you think about him, they were kind of saved from water. Right? Everybody else out there was dying because they didn't obey God and they weren't in the ark. Uh, and that's a figure of the church. Being in the church, covered by the blood of Christ, Entering in that door, just like the one door of the ark, is what saves us. And that door is, we're entering it through baptism. That's how we get into Christ, is the door is Christ. And so we see in this this very first example of Noah, the separation. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, Now, we got your crown. Mr. Jeff got your crayon right down there. So you, you can't be too upset. Uh, Genesis 6, in verse 8, we see that Noah finds grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah is righteous before God. And he is God is going to extend his grace to him. And there's going to be a, a separation. We get that in, in verse 13. God said to Noah... The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. <clears throat> God's going to destroy the earth and all flesh that lives in it. All animal life, all people are going to die because of the, the wickedness of the earth. But there's going to be a separation, this, this separation between the sheep and the goats, between those who obey God and are righteous before him and those who are not. And so there's the the punishment that's going to happen, but God, through his grace, lays out to Noah, I want you to build this boat. I want you to build an ark. I want you to build it exactly like this, from these materials, using pitch, inside and out, one door, one window. This is how I want you to build it. And Noah does it through faithful obedience. And so he and his family, like Peter points out, altogether eight people are saved. They obtain salvation from the punishment that is enacted on the world. And then you get over to verse, or to chapter 8 and verses 17. 
And God says, bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of the cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. There's the invitation. Now the earth is clean again, and I'm giving it to you. Be fruitful and multiply in the earth. It's the invitation to the reward. And Noah sacrifices the animals in the following verses, through verse 20. And God makes a covenant with him. And the rainbow is the, the symbol of that covenant. I want to I want to go forward now to another figure that's likened to baptism, and it's one we don't use as much. We're going to use the Red Sea here in a minute when we talk about Moses taking the people out of uh, Egypt. But before that, I want to talk about Moses and the Passover, the the actual Passover, the first one, not the Passover feast that's established uh, at this time. But the actual establishment of the Passover, Israel had become a great and mighty people, but they were enslaved by the Egyptians. And God said, I'm going to free my people. And at this point in Exodus, uh, we're going to be in Exodus 11, if you want to turn over to there. And at this point, there have already been nine plagues that have been affected upon the Egyptians, Nine plagues, and we know there's going to be a tenth one because Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. He keeps promising to let them go, but then changing his mind. And so God is going to bring about the tenth and terrible plague of the killing of the firstborn, both of people and of animals. And I want us to note that the killing of the firstborn brings about rapid salvation for God's people. It's, it's very similar. It's a figure that's just like the death of Jesus, the firstborn of God, brings about rapid salvation for his people, for God's people. It's very similar to that. And we see in Exodus 11, and beginning in verse 3, And the Lord gave the people favor... In the sight of the Egyptians, moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits on the throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. There's going to be this great plague, the killing of the firstborn. But I want you to know... That there's a difference between my people, the people of Israel, they are not going to lose their firstborn, and the Egyptians who are going to lose their firstborn. Well, how does that take place? Well, in in the next chapter, and we look at verses 5 through 7, God gives instructions. says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male for the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two sides of the post, on the upper doorpost of the houses 
wherein they shall eat it. He wants you to take a lamb. God wants you to take a lamb without blemish and sacrifice it and take and eat it and take the blood from it and put it over the door. And that house is then going to be a place of safety from the killing of the firstborn because the unblemished blood of the lamb is over the doorpost. And anyone inside is safe because that designates God's people. That designates the people who God has extended his grace to. And if they do what he says to do, they'll be saved. So there's salvation after the separation. And then, of course, that takes place. And there's an invitation in the following verses, it says, after this takes place, and you're going to eat of the flesh, starting in verse 8 of chapter 12, in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it, eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head and his legs, and with his pertinence thereof, and ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until morning ye shall burn with fire. There's a feast. You're invited to the feast. And there's going to be salvation because of it. And all the symbology there is to do with the fact that they're going to have to quickly leave. The Egyptians are going to drive them out. In the following verses, you're supposed to eat it with your sandals on, holding your staff. You're ready to go because the Egyptians are going to drive you out. They don't want you there anymore. So not only are you going to obtain freedom, they're going to send you on your way. They're going to give you gold and and jewels just to leave. Please leave. Because our people are being punished because of you because our Pharaoh has not let you go. So we see in this figure of the Passover, again, very similar to baptism, being covered by the blood of the Lamb, the unblemished Lamb that's Christ. And being inside the house, that's being inside the church, entering through the door that's covered with that blood. And we'll go on to a third figure, which is again connected to Moses and is familiar, no doubt, with, to all of us. And that is the crossing of the Red Sea. So after the people are driven out, and we, we get over to chapter 14 of Exodus, there's a cloud that leads them, the people of Israel, in the wilderness, pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. And the Egyptians change their mind. The Pharaoh changes his mind and he decides to pursue Israel. And we see in Exodus 14, Starting in verse 20, that, well, we'll start in verse 19. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, 
And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. They're going to cross. All of God's people are going to cross across the Red Sea with the clouds separating them from those who are pursuing them. They cannot get past it to get to the Israelites. The Egyptians are separated by the cloud. So God again by his grace, has given this salvation to them. And now they're going to go down into the Red Sea with the wall of water on each side and the cloud behind them and probably, I think, over them. And they are immersed in the water. They're not getting wet. They're crossing over on dry ground. But they're immersed just as in a baptism. Then the Egyptians follow them. God allows them to follow them. All of Israel gets safely on the other side. And then in 14 and verse 26, it says, The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. They are all killed in the sea. That's the punishment for those who are not doing the will of God. And then you turn to Exodus 16, <clears throat> and they're in the wilderness, and, and they're hungry. And you get to 16, verse 15, And when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, It is manna, for thou wist not what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. God gives them food to eat, and manna. And then in 17, and verse 6, Behold, I will stand before thee, there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. There's drinking from the rock. God provided them water. They're invited to the feast. They have food, manna from God. They have water. And... We have the separation by the cloud. We have the salvation from the punishment. We have the invitation to the feast. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. And verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's a figure just like unto baptism. God's people went into the Red Sea. They were baptized unto Moses as their leader, and they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual Drink. We're going to do something very similar a little bit when we partake of the Lord's Supper. God's people drink of the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink in a figure that is just like that in the Passover and is just like that of those who were saved from the Egyptians. Well, one more example, and then we're going to look at just a few other elements to consider. But I want you to look then at Joshua. So God's people 
Of course, they had sinned, and they were made to wander for 40 years in the desert until all of that generation, except for Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, had passed away. So you have a whole new generation of God's people. And now Moses has died. He's not allowed to go into the the promised land because of his sin. And the people are there, and they are ready to enter into the land that God has given them. But they are on the east side of the Jordan. And God is turning over the leadership from Moses to Joshua at this point. And we see in Joshua chapter 3, uh, and it really starts in verse 7 and goes through 17, but we'll just read verses 14 through 17. It says, And it came to pass when the people were moved from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as they that bore the Ark were common to Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the Ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up from a heap very far from the city of Adam, it was beside Zaratan. And those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Think about the the faith that took place here. It's a little bit cut off, but you can see the priests here are about to to cross the Jordan. I, I couldn't find a picture that really pictured it the way I wanted wanted it pictured, the way I believe that it was. I, the Jordan was a raging river at this point. It's a river in flood. Uh, the Jordan's the main river that goes through. All the land of Israel uh, starts the headwaters in the north out of the mountains, comes down and ends in the Dead Sea, and kind of bisects Israel right there. And now, of course, it's a very controlled river, being the the main water source for that area. Uh, it's in a lot of places, it's no more than a trickle. Uh, but there are places that look basically like this uh, on the River Jordan even now. But there, it's never going to flood like it did then because it's so controlled. At, at that time, when it was flooding, I imagine if you've ever seen like the Mississippi River when it's flooding or any kind of a flood, how, to me, it's, it's very dangerous looking. It's very, I don't want to dip my toes in it. I don't want to get anywhere near it because of the danger that's there. So I just think about the faith that would it take. You're a Levite, a priest, and you're carrying the ark which I imagine is pretty heavy. It's made of gold. And you have to step into the raging river. Nothing happens until you step into the river. It seems like until you get wet, until you touch the water, nothing happens. But the faith that that these men had, they stepped into that river Jordan, and immediately the water backs up, and they're able to cross across. And they stand there in the midst of all that water, rising up on their side, and they cross again. It's, it's very similar to the, the parting of the Red Sea and being baptized unto Moses, now being baptized essentially unto Joshua. 
And it's revealed that those who had wandered in the wilderness, the men had not been circumcised like God told them to do. That was the sign of the covenant, and they were supposed to do it. They had not done it. So they do that in Joshua 5 and verse 9. And after they do that, in verse 9 it says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off of you, wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. And in the next verses, verses 11 and 12, And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day, and the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. They're coming into the land that God has promised them. Here's the reward. And you're going to start to eat of the bounty of that land instead of the manna that I've provided for you. The manna has ceased, and now they're getting the bounty of the land that God is giving to them to help build their faith to take on that land and take over what God has given them, which they do in Jericho and in other places following that throughout the book of Joshua. A few other things to consider, and then we'll close. But I want us to think about the elements that are involved in these uh, and that are involved in the worship and purification throughout the Old Testament. As we read in Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we see over and over again the same kinds of things. And I only picked a few to, to quickly go through and think about the fact of, of the blood. I, notice I didn't do a picture for this one because it would be pretty gruesome. There was a lot of blood involved in sacrifice in the Old Testament. Uh, so much so that on the Passover, when they're they're killing these lambs, and they're making the sacrifices at the temple, it was said that so much blood would run down that the Kidron, the brook in Jerusalem, would run red. This is the, the brook that Jesus had to cross coming over from the Mount of Olives as he was taken prisoner. And he, he's crossing that, and the river is running red with the blood of these lambs. Think about the, the symbolism there. And we see that all throughout Leviticus, over and over, in Leviticus 1.15, And the priest shall bring it unto the altar, and wring off his head, and burn it on the altar, and the blood thereof shall be wrung out at the side of the altar. Leviticus 4, 6, and 7. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle the blood seven, seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of the sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. In Leviticus 14, 14, the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering, and the priest shall put it upon the tip of his right ear of him that is to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. It's odd, isn't it? But he's covered, in a sense, from his head to his feet in blood because of atonement. It's symbolism of what Christ has done for us. He's covered us with his blood. 
So blood is a, a powerful and important symbol throughout all of this. And we're baptized into the blood of Christ. And of course, the other major aspect of this is water. We see in Exodus 40, uh, 12 through 15, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and you shall anoint them, even as you have anointed the father, that they may minister as priests to me and their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did according to the Lord and commanded him, so he did. Water. You're washing them. Leviticus 16, 3-4. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body and they shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. It's cleansing before you enter into the tabernacle. Leviticus 16.24 He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. He shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. There's washing. Water is continually involved. And take a look at these two and then the lesson will be yours. In Isaiah 1 Verses 16 through 18. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And Jeremiah 4.14. O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? We think about the idea of washing, of being baptized, buried in water, and it's not for a cleansing of the flesh. It's a symbol of the cleansing of the heart. We're washing our heart. We're being buried with Christ, coming in contact with the blood, the very blood of Christ, sacrificed for us, wherein there is life. So in the New Testament, we're commanded to be baptized. It's part of the plan of salvation. Uh, There are many examples of it, but the one that's most clear to me is the one to do with Paul. We talked about it in Bible class, but it's in Acts 22 and verse 16, where he's been praying and fasting for three days, and Ananias comes to him and tells him, to, to rise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Be baptized, which is calling on the name of the Lord. Now, baptism always means immersion. and We don't have time to go into that, but the very form of the word itself comes from uh, the term for cloth makers who would dye the cloth, and they would plunge it in the dye to, to color the cloth red or purple. And they would plunge it. If you're going to do that, you're not going to just sprinkle it on the cloth. The cloth would, would not be dyed that color. And so it's a, a plunging in the water. And I just want you to think about the fact that Paul, who had spoken to Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had an, an epiphany. Right? He had a, a conversation with the Lord. 
and then he was struck blind. He was led into Damascus where he sat there for three days and he prayed and he fasted and he didn't eat or drink anything for three days. And even though he hadn't eaten or drank anything in those three days, what is the first thing he does when he receives his sight? When Ananias comes and tells him what he needs to do in Acts 9 and verses 18, immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. You say, well, maybe they left it out. Maybe he, he ate something first. No. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days of the disciples, which were at Damascus. He hasn't eaten or, or drank anything in three days, but he's baptized first, and he's weak. And then, after he's baptized, he doesn't put it off. After he's baptized, then he eats. Then he drinks. Talking to Jesus didn't save him. Prayer and fasting for three days didn't save him. He had to obey what Christ told him to do, to be baptized. And I think that's so clear and so obvious in the the story of Paul. And it's repeated multiple times. Just the story of Paul's conversion is repeated three times in the book of Acts. But there are others who were saved in that way as well. And then we have to be faithful to God all the rest of our days, continuing to amend our life to the will of God. If you have not ever obeyed the gospel, we would encourage you to do that. If you have, but you've fallen away, you've let sin come back into your life, we would encourage you to come forward and make that right. And if you have obeyed the gospel and you're walking in the light, a season in the light, We'd encourage you to reach out to your friends, family, neighbors, and to teach them the truth, or to invite them and tell them to come and see. Because the truth is right here in God's Word. Salvation and separation is available, and salvation can only be found in Christ. If that's the case for you this morning, please come and make it known as we stand and sing.